Good morning. Good morning. Hey, Elizabeth, I'm not going to turn my mic on, okay? Okay. I'm to let you know, just in case we're trying to figure that one out. So, I, I'm not going to have to be confined by the little uh, uh, cage up here. That's kind of exciting. Still screaming. Oh, is it? Oh, I guess I am going to have to be confined by the little cage. I'm sorry. Sorry. That's all right. So, you, uh, I, I had some... Great slides that I was going to share with you this morning, but we can't do that. You do have notes in your bulletin. Um, this is about Matthew 6. I've entitled this, Living into the Kingdom because you have a Father who loves you. You know, I might be slightly biased, but I've been really uh, blessed by the foundation that uh, David and Stephen have laid at the beginning of Matthew, the, the intro, the first few chapters, just talking about the, the correlation between Matthew and the Old Testament. Uh, honestly, I had never really seen that until they pointed it out, um, but it, it's pretty obvious once you see it. And this section, 6, you know, Steve started last week with 5, next we're going to look at 7. <laughs> Interesting how those go together. Um, <laughs> Lighten up, guys. Come on, just because the power's out doesn't mean you can't laugh. All right, five, six, and seven. It's really the Sermon on the Mount. And so he, Steve, last week he talked about how uh, it really harkens back to Moses in the Old Testament up on the mountain giving the law. And so in essence, what we're seeing here is a, a new Moses on a new Sinai giving a, a new law um, for all practical purposes. And, and for nearly three chapters... We read there nothing except the words of Jesus. There's a, there's a short introduction at the beginning of 5. There's kind of a, a postscript at the end of 7. But if you use a red letter edition, everything else in there is all the words of Jesus. And it's, uh, uh, you, know, you, you just see so much in that section. And I think chapter 6 is really the key to understanding all of this. Because the real emphasis in chapter 6 is you have a father who loves you. You have a Father in Heaven who is, is watching out for you, who's taking care of you, and we're going to see that repeatedly um, through this. And, and by the way, I do want to mention that as we started thinking about looking at go preaching through the book of Matthew, we realized that every single Sunday there's going to be somebody or somebodies who are going to leave disappointed. Because we can't go through every single thing in every chapter during the time, you know, we, we could spend a few hours preaching every Sunday. We didn't think that was going to be a good option. Or we could spend a few years going through the book of Matthew. We didn't think that was going to be a good option either. So what we're doing is we're going to kind of hit some high points and then leave stuff for you to kind of mine through, if you will, through the rest of the week. So just realize we're not going to hit everything in here. I just want to make sure that everybody's with me on that. So at the end, you're going, well, what about this and this and this? Yeah, that's for your, your turn, okay? <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we, as we look at your word right now, we are inviting you to, to speak into our lives. God, we want to we see more than we've seen in the past. We want to know more. We want to understand more. But more, we want to we be, be changed and affected by your word so that our lives will come into line with it. And we ask that you would do that even here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, you, you may want to have your Bible open, even if you need to use your phone for a flashlight, or use your Bible on your phone, because I'm not going to go through this verse by verse. Um, honestly, it, some, some things I'm going to kind of group into categories, because it's going to make more sense to our, our Western way of thinking. But, but one of the things that Jesus does here, especially in this first section of Matthew 6, is that he, he contrasts act, the activities of the hypocrites 
with those who are part of his kingdom. He mentions the word hypocrites three times in this section, and each one of them, they are doing good things. They're, they're actually, I think what Matthew would refer to it as uh, traditional Jewish good works. They're helping the poor and praying and fasting, and we'll see those things. So those aren't bad things, they're actually really good things. Uh, but please notice here that Jesus doesn't tell them not to do those things. He says they shouldn't do them in order to be seen by others. Uh, uh, apparently, there are people who are doing those things with the wrong motivation. They want people to see them. They want people to be. They, they want to be admired by people. They want. They want the applause of people for doing those things. But let's be really honest. We do the same thing at times. We want to be noticed. We want to be admired. You know, we can be we can be like the little kid when the complete stranger comes over to their house. What do they do? They run in their room and they say, beautiful drawing they did that day, or their 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 new baseball, or their, their favorite doll, or whatever, because they want to be noticed, they want to be admired. And you and I can do the same thing. And where that shows up most today in our culture is social media. We post something or we say something and we get lots of likes or retweets or comments or whatever. We think we're something special, but it's not just social media where that happens. It can happen in everyday life. We want to be noticed. We want to be recognized. And, and please know that if I'm stepping on your toes this morning, I'm doing it intentionally. <laughs> but, but I'm also stepping on mine, so I just want to... Be aware of that. But Jesus says that kind of thinking of wanting to be noticed by others is, is all backwards. It's the whole, the whole mindset is upside down. We're supposed to do the things he's talking about here, but, but we're not supposed to be doing them toward men. We're supposed to be doing them toward God. And, and I, I, I love the fact that he doesn't just use the word God. He says, your father. The word father is used ten times in the first 18 verses of Matthew 6. Over and over, and, and uh, all, but, all but the one in the prayer, they're all preceded by the word your, your father, your heavenly father. He, he's driving home a point here that you have a father who loves you, over and over. Jesus is making that idea clear, that the second most common word used there in those first 18 verses is will, as used eight times, and it's almost always with what your father will do. He's, he's painting this picture of a heavenly father who cares richly for you. As he goes along, he's kind of coloring it in more and more so that we get the, the, the full grasp of the idea of what he's saying. He, he's the one you want to aim at pleasing. Don't worry about people. Your father who loves you, he's the one you want to go after. And when Jesus tells us here that we need to pray in secret, that we need to give in secret, that we need to do our good works in secret, is that, is that literally always? I mean... You know, that's kind of what it sounds like he's saying. But think about it. Jesus didn't always do all of those things in secret. He did amazing good works out in public. There were times that he prayed publicly, well, at least not in private. And so it can't be just that's the way that we're always supposed to do it, right? But what he's telling us is to do those things, but to do them with the right motivation, with our heart turned toward God. Don't worry about people. You don't have to be concerned about what, what anybody else thinks. 
The whole point is that it's for him. Always. And uh, it's an interesting statement that he makes. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. You know, I... I had never really thought about this before. As I was studying for this, I always just kind of grouped that together with the hypocrite statements. Um, but that's not really what it's saying. Because if you think about it, the, the, in the, 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 the words, as the Gentiles do here, is really, really important. Okay, Because if you think about it, the, the Jews that are there, what are they going to hear? They're going to hear hypocrites. Oh, well, that's, that's those people that, that do things. Our folks, who do Jewish people, who do things, but with the wrong motivation. But when he said Gentiles, that's a different group. You with me? So, so it's one of those things that we read from this Western mindset. We don't get it. Um, but what I want you to think about, think about this. In the, the time of Jesus saying this, the Rome, Romans that had lots of different gods. Okay? So in order to be heard, they prayed a lot. Because they didn't want, I don't know, they didn't want Venus to get upset because they were only talking to Jupiter. Or vice versa. And so they had to heap up lots of words in order to be heard. You with me? But Jesus contrasts that whole crazy notion with you. You have a heavenly father who cares for you. You don't need to beg. He wants good things for you. You following me? Mm-hmm. I think I shared this one other time. The first time I ever encountered somebody really begging was decades ago in Poland. Big city. There were three or four people out on a sidewalk just kind of lined up there. And they had physical problems. One was blind. I remember one had, had major deformity in their legs. And the, apparently that's what they do every single day is they just sit there and beg. And we, we encounter something kind of like that in our culture today at intersections with the sign, homeless, please help. I'm always skeptical, sorry. I just, I just always think it's a, a, a ruse, not real. Um, so I, it, it, it takes a real nudge from the Holy Spirit to get me to actually give in that situation. Like I know what I'm talking about. But contrast that with a totally different idea here. What if, what if my wife comes to me and says, honey, I know you have cash in your wallet. I need $20 right now. Please give it to me. Mm-hmm. If I've got the $20, she's going to get it, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Be- because, why? Be- be- because of relationship. She doesn't need to beg. We have a relationship. See, if you don't have a relationship, you got to heap up words. you got to beg. <clears throat> Back in that time, you know, all of those all of those Roman gods, even from their cultural perspective, there was no relationship. The only way, they didn't care, the, 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 those gods didn't care about people. The only way you're going to get anything from them is by lots of words. Please, please, please help me. And Jesus says, no. you got a father who loves you, who cares for you richly who wants to give you good things. So don't worry. 
And, and please note that when Jesus is talking about their many words, I don't get the impression that he's telling them to, to shorten your prayers. I get the impression that what he's saying is that the length really isn't all that important. It's really not that big of a deal. You know, if I can be really honest, there have been times where I have been intimidated by somebody else praying. Because there are people that can just pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And, you know, I'll say a two-sentence prayer and I feel like mine was inferior. Am I the only one? Okay, I just want to make sure. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about it. He's telling us, don't do a word count. Just talk to your father. That's the important thing. And then he goes on and he demonstrates this whole idea by showing them how to pray. Pray like this, he says. It's what we refer to as the, the Lord's Prayer. Matthew's version is a whopping 51 words. You know, there are some of us who do more than that just giving thanks before a meal. And I, I read through this in Matthew's version here just at a leisurely pace and timed it. 15 seconds. 15 seconds. Talk about non-intimidating. And again, he, he begins by pushing us toward our Heavenly Father. He's been using that phrase, your Father, your, your Heavenly Father. He's been saying it again and again. And now here in the prayer, he says, pray like this. Our Father. Wow. I mean, that, that was radical for the Jewish mindset. But I think what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to get them into the right mode. I am not coming before a, 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 a mean-spirited, vindictive God. I'm coming before my Father who loves me. Total shift of mind at that point. And then right after the phrase, hallowed be, be your name, in my Bible, there's a footnote that says that, that an alternate translation is let your name be treated with reverence. Let your name be treated with reverence. What's the, what's the second commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. See, what, it, it, it's reverencing that name. And that's what he's saying here. I mean, in our vernacular, we would say, Lord, I honor your name. I honor you, in other words. And then verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's, there's two parts there. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But I think, a lot of, a lot of commentators think, that it's really Jesus, what he's doing there is he's saying the same thing two different ways. It's the same idea, he's just saying it from two different angles. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth and here as it is in heaven. See, that's really what we want, is we want God's will to be done through us. But what that means is His kingdom is coming through us. Yeah, that's, if, if you think back, uh, both David and Stephen over and over, both in, in this, this section on Matthew as well as other times they preach, they told us that the, the primary theme is all about God's kingdom coming and us taking it into the world, extending that kingdom more and more. Let your kingdom come, Lord, here. Let your will be done, here, through me. Same thing, just from two different ways. So, so think about this in the prayer. We've, we've turned our attention toward our Heavenly Father, right? We, we've reverenced Him, we've honored Him, we've, we've asked for His kingdom to, to come and be more manifest in and through us. And then verse 11, it's the one and only petition about our needs, it says, give us this day our daily bread. Just seven words. And it's about a father who's taking care of us. 
And then and that's it. And then he's immediately he's on to, on to something else. I think that's interesting. Remember what Jesus said about not heaping up phrases? I think he's showing that here. I mean, how many times have I heard somebody pray like, Lord, I want to remind you that we are, we are completely out of flour. We're, we're not going to have anything to eat if you don't supply this. We're, we're getting desperate here, God. I don't want my family to go hungry. And, and think about little Jimmy and, and, and his ailment and, and, and Sister Sarah. Please, God. And Jesus just says, give us this day our daily bread. It's a, a simple humble trust in a heavenly father who cares about us. And keep in mind this whole, this whole section right here is just, in just a few moments we're going to, to see the, the whole birds of the air and flowers of the field thing and God's taking care of them, right? But he wants to establish that trust early on here. Seven words, one sentence, it's all we need. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven also our debtors. And the word debts there is about something that's owed to us, morally, financially, whatever. Um, but it's interesting that Jesus uses a different word a few verses later when he's kind of unpacking this section. Verses 14 and 15 says this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That word trespasses is, is a broader, it's a different word, it's a broader word. And it, it's talking about uh, even um, uh, something that, that, that's intentional or something that was kind of accidental that you did, either way. So, And at the same time, it's really clear that he's referring back to the prayer because he says, for if you forgive, and that for is not just kind of a, an afterthought in the English that was added in. It's actually there in the Greek. So it's clear he's referring back to what he just said. And so the long and short of it is, whether it's something that's owed to us, something that was intentional, something that just kind of happened, that our job is to, what? <laughs> forgive. Forgive. Forgive like you've been forgiven. I want to... I I want to hang out on that like you've been forgiven just for a minute because I think that's so important. You know, in the, in the previous chapter, last week Steve read um, about Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. But if you keep reading, he like expands the law massively. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm just, I always try to picture me sitting there as Jesus is teaching. And I'm thinking, if this was me sitting there listening to him, I'd be going... No way! Who could possibly do this? I mean, think about it. Not just adultery, but lust. Not just, not just hatred, or not just, just murder, but hatred. N not, not just an oath, but when you say yes or no, live up to that fully. When, when, when somebody does something wrong to you, if they take something, give them more. If they slap you, say do it again. I mean, this is... This is crazy talk. This isn't the law restated. This is the law on steroids. This is the law multiplied by a thousand, thousand times. Who could possibly live up to this? And that's the point. We can't. We can't. You know, we, we can, I think we can begin to think that, the, the, we can't even live up to the Ten Commandments, but I think sometimes we, we think perhaps we could. Ten, ten rules. We, we can do that. Put that into 
proper, you know, a, a physical way of thinking. It's the bar is at 10 feet, okay? World record high jump is a little over eight feet. 10 feet, that might be achievable. Somebody really work at it. But Jesus just raised the bar to like 500 feet. There is no possible way. There's no way that we can live up to that. And that's what he's saying. You are, you are buried under a weight of sin that is crushing you. You are smothering under all of that. And guess what? You've been forgiven. And now you go and do likewise. Forgive as you have been forgiven. And I'll be the first to admit that's, that's not easy. I don't always do it well. You know, our natural inclination when we've been wronged is that we, we want some sort of restitution we want revenge. We at least want the offending party to admit that they were they were they did something wrong, right? But that doesn't always happen. And yet we still need to forgive. And then comes verse 13, the end of the prayer here in Matthew. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'd like to suggest that maybe there are some here that need to be praying that section more. Keep us away from the things that are tempting us. Deliver us from those situations. But I would also suggest that um, we have a role to play in that. Now you've heard me say before, I think we need to pray like everything depends on God. We need to work like everything depends on us. And, and, and don't get all bent out of shape. This is not a works righteousness kind of thing. I mean, even as I say that, I'm keenly aware that I do not have the strength to do it. I have to trust in, in God's work in me. It was the Apostle Paul that said, I worked harder than, than all the other apostles, but it wasn't, it wasn't really me doing it. It was the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 15, <coughs> on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Paul is saying, I've given it everything I've got, but I know it really was his work in me. So we do the same thing. We, we pray for God to, to keep us from temptation, but we also make a point of not putting ourselves in a place of temptation. So let's get practical. If you struggle with, I don't know, with overeating, probably hanging out at a bakery is not your best bet. You with me? Lead us not in temptation. If you, if you, if you struggle with, you're asking God to, to keep you from being so angry, well, if you keep replaying that scenario that made you angry in your mind, that's probably not your best course of action. Lead us not in temptation. Okay, so, so in that whole first half of Matthew, we've seen uh, Jesus as, as Moses in the Old Testament. We're going to continue to see that, but there's a, there's a little shift right here that I think is pretty profound. And basically, I think what we see happen here is that Jesus is now kind of, in some ways, playing the role of Solomon. I mean, think back to Solomon's Proverbs. How many times in Proverbs do we read these, um, these, these uh, statements that come from nature? Uh, Proverbs 6.6, 6, go to the ant, consider her ways and be wise. I mean, read through the book of Proverbs. You read about lions and dogs and strutting roosters and horses and bubbling brooks, all of these, these illustrations from nature. And along comes the, the guy who gave that wisdom to Solomon, 
And what does he do? He talks about uh, th things like birds and uh, flowers and grass and you know the, all these nature kind of things. And and just like Solomon did, Jesus says there's there's two paths. You got to pick one. You know, the beginning of so uh, the book of Proverbs, Solomon says there's folly and there's wisdom. You want to follow wisdom. You don't want to follow folly, right? And, and, and what does Jesus do here in Matthew 6? He says you can't serve two masters. You're, you're going to love one or hate the other. You're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You've got to choose which way you're going. So this reminds me of, of Solomon here. But, but this is more than just a nice sermon about wisdom. See, what he's giving us here, he, think back to, to, to Matthew 5. How many times in Matthew 5, especially the beginning of 5, did we hear about the, the kingdom of God? Over and over and over, right? And then even here in this section, verse 33, what does he say? Seek first, you all know it, seek first the kingdom. Yeah, there we go. So, so the ultimate goal is not even wisdom like Solomon, but the kingdom of God. And I want you to notice how he distinguishes between his followers and the others. Uh, he refers to them as, as the Gentiles or the pagans. They go after earthly treasure, worldly success, temporal power. But Jesus' followers are supposed to go after what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. <clears throat> totally different mindset. And I want, to see, I want us to see here that as Jesus differentiates between us and the Gentiles, that the words he speaks, honestly, I think they're foolishness if we don't understand what he's doing. See, there are people who would look at this, this section and think this is like, this is like the, the, the first century hippie. The, 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 the get back to, to, to nature and get out of the rat race kind of thing. But this is totally different from that because what Jesus is doing is giving us a whole new concept. This is the kingdom of God coming among you. He's talking to a very specific group. This isn't for, you know, Solomon's wisdom. Anybody, Christian or not, can get stuff out of that. They can learn stuff from it. This is for people who know their Heavenly Father. This is for people who know the Son. This is for people who are part of that kingdom. Very, very specific. And if we don't understand that, then we're going to miss the, the, the point here. The kingdom of God is coming among you, and you can be a part of it. And he, interestingly, I think, Jesus contrasts his kingdom with the worldly kingdom. See, the worldly kingdom, the people of the world... Their standard operating procedure, if you will, is anxiety. There have been a couple of places that I have... Oh, you want the microphone on? Then I can stop. There have been a couple of places where I have worked <coughs> in the past where they had a standard operating procedure manual. And if you didn't know how something was supposed to done, it, be done, it was listed in it. You just go to the manual. Cool. I think the standard operating procedure of the world is anxiety. And it has to be. Think about it like this. You and I, anybody, cannot control time. We don't know what's going to happen next moment, let alone two months from now or whatever. We just don't. And yet, we have this tendency to want to control what's going to happen. We want to be in control. We want to know what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. Right? We want to know what we're going to do next year, what we're going to do five years from now, what we're going to do ten years from now. We want to know whether our IRAs are going to be worth anything. 
We want to know what our kids and our grandkids are going to be like. We want to know if we'll be alive in 10 years. We want to know if our spouse will be alive in 10 years. But the fact is, we can't. And so if we want to know, and we can't, there's only one option. It's anxiety. It's fear. And that's where we end up living if we're not part of the kingdom. Are you with me? So Jesus invites you and me, his followers, into a totally different mindset. Matthew 6, 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. The, the lay up there, it's interesting because it's actually the same word as treasures, only a different form. So what Jesus is literally saying is don't treasure treasures. So think about what that means. That doesn't mean that you're not supposed to have stuff. Doesn't mean you're supposed to go sell all your possessions. It means you don't treasure them. You know, if what's that mean? If we treasure something, if I say I treasure my car, I treasure my baseball card collection, I don't have a baseball card collection. Um, but if we treasure something, what, what does it mean? It means we value it a lot, right? And Jesus is saying, don't do that. The worldly stuff, not worth that much. Just isn't. Just not that important. Pursue his kingdom and his righteousness. Those are the higher priorities. And when we do that, what happens? We get all the stuff, right? Steve quoted Peter Lightheart last week several times. Let me give you one more quote from him in the context of Matthew 6. He said this, God intends to set up Jesus on the throne over the whole cosmos, and he's beginning to do that now. He's going to defeat evil and put his world back together, and he's beginning to do that now. The future is arriving, and the future is secure in God's hands. He is the God of the future, and he is establishing his future in the present and the kingdom, which is God's future world arriving in the present, is not driven by anxiety, but by trust. Because within this kingdom, we know that the future is secure. We know that God has everything under control. We know that God is our Heavenly Father who will care for us. Wow. So those of us who are in the kingdom, we don't need to be anxious because we've got a Heavenly Father who's taking care of us, who's looking out for us. You might be familiar with the the Pentecostal Evangel Magazine, it's the official uh, publication of the Assemblies of God, article a while back by a man named Dale Robbins. He was, it was early in his ministry um, as a pastor, and he and his wife were barely making ends meet. And he said that he had just $3 in his wallet and one can of soup in the cupboard. And so they had the can of soup for uh, supper that night. And then afterwards, he sat in another room, he was reading his Bible, and he was crying and wondering if God really had called him into the ministry. He said that that night he and his wife each prayed at opposite ends of their trailer home for God's provision, and they went to bed. The next morning they woke up to somebody knocking on the door, and he wrote this. Who is it, I asked. A mystery voice replied, I've got something for you. Cautiously I opened the door. There stood a short man with a grin on his face and two brown grocery bags in his arms. He quickly shoved the bags into the doorway, then turned and walked away. Jerry, that's his wife, Jerry joined me. Stunned, we began to look through the bags. There were bread, meat, canned goods, and several cans of my favorite soup. They were the same items and brands we normally purchased. There was also a can of shaving cream. Who knew I had just used my last ounce of shaving cream? On the bottom of one sack was an envelope with cash. 
On that wintry Saturday morning in Syracuse, my wife and I wept in our trailer and thanked God. No one on the planet knew about our need, only the Lord God Almighty, and he dispatched a little grinning man to minister to us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We have a heavenly Father who's taking care of us. Let's trust him to do that. But it does say we're supposed to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and his righteousness. It seems to me, we heard several sermons earlier this year about righteousness. Amen. Without having to re-preach those, that's what this is talking about. Of obeying what God wants us to do. Of living righteously, if you will. And so, so, so let me... Let me start to pull this all together. Think about what we've heard Jesus say here. You have a father who loves you. He's taking care of you. He's providing for you. Seek him. Seek his kingdom. Seek to obey him. Be more concerned about what, what he thinks than what others think. Right? That's what we heard. But honestly, I think that's an initiation idea. I think that's a starting point that Jesus was sharing with those, those early believers. I think that for, for those of us who, who have walked with him longer, that maybe there's, there's something more, there's something deeper here. See, what Matthew is portraying here is that Jesus really is, is like Moses in the Old Testament, taking the people out of slavery into a new land. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He has brought you and me out of slavery and he is bringing us into a whole new life. Everything is changed. Everything is different. And just like those Old Testament Israelites, yeah, it's their waiting, but we've got some work to do. There's some things that we have to, we, we can't, can't just kind of sit there and watch it. We've got to be involved. This new life is greater, way greater than anything the Old Testament Israelites ever even imagined. But we also have a privilege of being able to take that kingdom and to spread it throughout the earth. Alright, so let me, let me bring this down, focus it a little bit more. I think we view ourselves from the wrong perspective. See, there is right now, there is this amazing grand drama playing out every single day all around us. It's called life. Everybody has a role in that drama, right? But the world, the Gentiles, the pagans, they look at us as the church and they think we're just bit players. We're not really important. Matter of fact, we probably shouldn't have even been there. We were walking past where the camera was shooting and happened to get into the scene. That's it. We have no real role there at all. That's the world's perspective. And too often, I think we begin to see ourselves that same way. But you know what? When that final curtain is pulled back, and people see the bride of Christ. They're going to be going, wait a minute. Those guys had the starring roles. They were really the most important ones. Jesus has the real starring role, all right? But we're his co-laborers. Are you with me? We, you and I, get to bring Eden into the marketplace, into our homes, into our jobs, to our neighbors, as his hands and feet here on earth, we get to feed the hungry, we get to love the lost, we get to bring the good news and heal the sick and help the poor. It's all part of the kingdom of God. And we're not sitting on the bench, at least we shouldn't be. Every person alive has a role in this, but you and I, as those who live in the kingdom, we have the main roles. And we need to be using those roles. And walking in that out. 
All right, let me close by saying something I think is important. It's not really a conclusion, but I think it's important. Somebody asked, why are we doing the book of Matthew? At the beginning of the year, we laid out four really important points that we felt like God wanted us to focus on this year. Why are we doing the book of Matthew? Well, if you remember those four points, they were prayer, gifts of the Spirit, unity, and, and um, righteousness, right? So those four things. This morning, it seems to me we heard about prayer. Jesus teaching us, Dale Robbins praying for provision. That's one of the four. We also talked about the kingdom of God. And if you understand that one of the primary ways the kingdom of God comes is through the Holy Spirit working through us, the gifts of the Spirit. If you don't get that, you're reading a different Bible than I am. Okay? So that's two of them. We also talked about His righteousness, how important it is for us to follow and obey Him. So we talked about three of the four right there. See, we're convinced as we, as we look at Jesus, that's who the book of Matthew is about after all, right? If we look at Jesus, we're going to see those things actually lived out and it's going to affect us. Are you following me? That's why we're doing what we're doing. 